So this morning, we looked at, from Romans 5, the reality of two domains, the domain of death and the domain of life. And we were considering the question of how someone can transfer from one domain to the other. The domain of death is a domain in which we all find ourselves, apart from any work of the gospel, we all stand condemned. We are guilty on two counts, with and in Adam. We have all sinned, and so death reigns over humanity. And in our own strength, there is no means by which we can escape. Paul then gives us the domain of life, rich, glorious, full of gospel realities. And the question of how we can move from one to the other is answered with grace. It is grace alone that allows us to move from death into life. Grace alone is the doctrine that rests central to our understanding of salvation. With all of that in view, there then arises at least one important question to consider. In many senses, I'll often say this, good Bible study simply depends on an ability and a willingness to ask good questions. To ask good questions of the text, it's always fascinating to me to watch the students come into the seminary at the very beginning of their education there. And as I teach them in one of the early classes, one thing I say to them it would seem on a weekly basis, is that you're asking the wrong question. They ask the wrong questions of the text. They don't know how to ask good questions, and that is by no means intended to be a criticism. They haven't learned how to think rightly about the text and so ask good questions, and then it's my joy and privilege a few years later as, as I get the same students again in a, in a later class as they get ready to graduate and they ask really good questions. That discipline is not restricted to those pursuing theological education alone, but it is a discipline that all Christians must work at, how to ask good questions of the text, because that's where we discover truth and theological riches. We need to ask good questions of the text, and you ask what constitutes a good question, that's actually quite Easy, a good question is the question that the text desires to answer. A good question is a question that the text desires to answer. So as we looked at Romans 5 this morning and thought through the two domains and the means by which we move from one into the other, the next question that arises is how can I stay within the domain of life? How can I remain within the domain of life? Now that I find myself here by God's grace alone, he has saved me, not based on any work of mine. Now that I find myself here, how can I ensure that I remain here? How do I ensure that 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years on from that moment of initial justification, I am still found within the domain of life? 
How can I ensure that when the bottom is ripped out of my world, my response is not such that I go back into the domain of death? How can I ensure that until the very end, I am someone who is ever living in that domain of life? Or, if we were to ask that same question from a slightly different angle, what is the relationship between grace and perseverance? What is the relationship between grace and perseverance? That is the question that our text this evening, Romans 8, 12 through 17, desires to answer. Paul seeks to address that question, how may I remain in the domain of life? What is the relationship between grace and perseverance? And simply stated, the answer is, the grace by which you were saved is the very same grace by which you persevere. The grace by which you were saved is the means by which you persevere. This evening I want to unpack that, to explain that through our text under three headings. The first is simply the responsibility to persevere, that we must persevere, the responsibility. Second, the means by which we persevere, how we accomplish the task of perseverance. And finally, what I've called the manner of our perseverance, what it looks like on a day-to-day basis. Beginning then with the responsibility to persevere, notice the passage begins, so then, brothers, we are debtors, we are in debt, not to the flesh, Paul says, according to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And we can stop there. And think about what Paul has just said. Another discipline that I want to exhort you towards, in addition to refining and honing your skill of asking good questions of the text as the means to write and proper and fruitful Bible study, another discipline that we all need to be pursuing is simply holding each and every text in its broader context. Much Bible study has suffered under a microscopic, myopic reading of the text. It's when we get our zoom lenses on to such an extent that we lose all notion of the broader context that we start to make theological errors. One thing that we are bound to do always when we read the Bible is to step back and to consider the broader context of the verses that are in view. Now, I labor that tonight because it is critically important in this case to understand that when Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, we are in Romans 8. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he says it in the broader context of Romans chapter 8. Of all places to tell us that we might die. We're in Romans chapter 8, the Mount Everest of the Bible, as J.I. Packer so famously wrote. 
We are in the portion of Scripture where Paul begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in the portion of Scripture which just beyond this passage contains some of the richest verses on assurance in all of Scripture. Paul is just about to say to us, who can separate us from the love of God? It is Christ Jesus that died for us. God condemns and we are right with him. Therefore, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. It is in that broader context that Paul says, inspired scripture, no errors. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. You have got to learn to love the tensions in Scripture. There are many tensions in the Bible. And you dare not bypass them. You dare not avoid them. You dare not put them to one side, preferring to go to easier texts to understand. You dare not sweep them under the rug. You dare not pass them off as if they're easily explainable, but rather embrace them, probe them, search them out, and study them because it is in the tensions of Scripture that theological truths are uncovered. There is a tension in Romans 8 when on the one hand Paul says the love of God will ever be with you because you are in Christ and at the same time in the same chapter, if you do this, you will die spiritually. There is a death being held out to the Christian in Romans chapter 8. So how do we resolve that tension? There are many throughout church history that have sought to resolve this tension by saying it is entirely possible to be saved, brought into union with Christ, and at a later date to no longer be in union, to no longer be saved. There are many throughout church history who have sought to reconcile this tension as well as many other times that we see it in the Bible by suggesting that it is entirely possible to fall away from the domain of salvation. And I would encourage you not to embrace that as the means by which we reconcile this tension. It creates far more problems than it resolves. Not least the many verses on assurance that come later in this very chapter. You now have the problem of explaining those away. It is not theologically sustainable to say that you can be saved genuinely and truly saved, united with Christ, and at a later point to have that union severed. An alternative explanation so as to reconcile this tension as given by the reformers and so many others in church history is to give heed to what we call the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. God intends to glorify all those whom he has justified. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 30, stands and it must stand bold in your heart. All those whom he has predestined, he has called. All those whom he has called, he has justified. All those whom he has justified, he has glorified. At the same time, the the God-appointed means by which we would obtain to final salvation is our striving. That is the doctrine of perseverance. And the certainty of the final outcome by no means diminishes the means by which we are to get there. The certainty with which Scripture sets forth our final glorified state, that absolute certainty that Paul speaks of, by no means diminishes the means by which God has ordained that we would get there. Namely, our perseverance. So this is a a real warning that Paul is given. And he is telling us, if you are in Christ, it is your responsibility to persevere, to strive. And by striving, God will ensure that you reach the intended end, namely your glorified state with Christ. He says it in a slightly different way in the same text in verse 17. He says, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. This is eschatological realities now. Provided, and here it is again, there's the caveat, there's the contingency. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I'll relieve the pressure a tiny bit. I'll alleviate that tension a tiny bit by simply saying that the word suffer here does not necessarily mean suffering in exactly the same manner in which Christ suffered. It does not have to be that the only path to glory is to trace out precisely the same footsteps as Christ, ending in a crucifixion on a cross, But nevertheless, there is to be a suffering in the Christian life. And to take that verb very broadly, I believe Paul intends us to understand that the suffering in the Christian life is simply that which comes about through our constant denial of the things of the world, our constant turning away from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes by saying no to that which dishonors God, there is a kind of suffering in the Christian life. And Paul says that is absolutely necessary. It is ordained by God. It is his appointed means by which you would make it to the end. And the certainty of your final glorification does not by any means diminish God's appointed path for you to get there. Now this morning I spoke in passing about some trends that we have seen within society over the last several decades, secularism and individualism and consumerism, and the the list goes on, there are equally trends that happen and occur and come and go within the church. And it's often a, a 
fruitful exercise simply to step back and understand the way in which church history has understood Scripture and communicated the message of Scripture because it teaches us so much about the church. And one of the trends that we have seen in the last 10 or 20 years within evangelicalism is a recentering of the gospel in all things. And this is a good thing. I don't, I don't fault this trend. I think it's a wonderful thing to bring all of life under the banner of the gospel as we have seen in recent times so that you now frequently come across books and articles and sermons that are teaching us such things as the gospel-centered life or the gospel-centered parenting or gospel-centered work. And the list goes on, and I do think there's much value in that emphasis that we've seen. There's a negative outworking of that at the same time And it has come about in large measure through the careless presentation of the gospel, especially from the pulpit. And it it sounds something like, because Christ has paid for our sins, you are now free to fail in him. All too often in recent years, you hear the message that sounds something akin to because Christ covers you and he is your all in all and and your life is wrapped up in him. You should feel the freedom to fail. And that is not the gospel. The Bible does not teach that. What the Bible teaches is because Christ is your all in all and your sins are covered by him, you are now free to persevere. You have now been set free from the bondage of sin and death so as to strive. Christ has saved you. He's paid for your sins with his own life, his own blood and such great a cost puts responsibilities on your shoulders, not least the responsibility each and every day to strive in the strength that God provides to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God's appointed means by which you would get to glory. And so there is much need simply to reestablish in the church today and in our own thinking, the biblical teaching that Christians must persevere. We must persevere. If you are negligent in this respect, at least two things will come about in your life. Number one, you'll quickly become a lazy Christian Number two, you will very quickly become a miserable Christian. God has created you for good works. And if you are not giving yourself to those good works as the means by which you persevere, you will be utterly miserable. 
There are so many Christians today who are discontent. And I'm convinced that so much of the problem goes back to their failure to get up in the morning and to run the race. To persevere. To fight against their sin. To fight against the inclinations of the flesh and to run towards holiness. This is God's intended means by which you would one day be glorified. And to neglect it, to overlook it, to be complacent about it will result in your misery as a Christian. Some of the most miserable people in life are Christians. Christians who do not persevere. So the first step is to acknowledge the reality, our responsibility to persevere. And from there comes another question. How then do we persevere? What is the means of my perseverance? I see The real warnings given to Christians concerning the possibility of my death. Somehow I know that if God has justified me, he will glorify me. At the same time, Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That then gives rise to the doctrine of perseverance. So my question is, how am I to persevere? What is the means by which I strive As a Christian. And the answer. Is grace. The grace. By which you were saved. Is the very same grace. By which you persevere. It is not a different grace. It is not a different approach to grace. The grace by which you were saved. Is exactly the same grace. By which you persevere. Now as I say that. If you're tracking with Paul's argument in this text, you might be thinking, but I don't see the word grace in this paragraph. That's a very good and astute observation, and I concede the word grace is not here. In part, my burden in preparing these messages was to be within one text. I really wanted to be in one text and to show what one book of the Bible does as it speaks about the multifaceted nature of grace. And so having landed on Romans 5 to speak about grace in salvation, I then came to Romans 8 to speak about grace in our perseverance. And I also felt burdened to highlight as a first step the responsibility to persevere and this text shows that perhaps as clear as any other in the Bible. So as I talk about grace being the means to perseverance, I want you to understand I'm doing it by way of an inference. I do believe it's here. I'm going to try and make the argument by way of a theological inference. Paul uses the word spirit in this paragraph, and he uses it all the way through Romans 8. It is the spirit chapter of the whole Bible. There are reasons why Paul labors the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8, in part, in part because he is writing Romans 
to some degree in response to Jewish objections concerning the gospel of grace. And so, responding to Jewish objections that have heralded the law, the Old Testament law, and so often distorted a proper understanding of the law, Paul talks about the Spirit. He talks about the law of the Spirit as distinct from the law of sin and death. And so that explains, at least in part, why Paul favors the use of the Spirit language here as opposed to grace. But note, elsewhere in Scripture, Paul writes exactly the same truth speaking about grace. In Titus chapter 2, he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, training us to renounce all ungodliness, to embrace godly ways of living as we wait for the appearance of the blessed hope. So just think about that. I consider that very much a parallel text to our text here this evening. Paul says in Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared. He has in view there the salvific act, the act of salvation, of initial salvation. The grace of God has appeared. The very next thing he says, training us to renounce ungodliness. So with this salvific act in view, he then says that same grace that appeared so as to bring us salvation is now training us to persevere. It is training us to renounce ungodliness. To what end? Well, he goes on to say, as we wait for the blessed hope, i.e. to the very end, to our glorified state. So the first thing to note is that elsewhere in Scripture, we see that truth clearly spelt out in the economy of grace. In Romans chapter 8, notice... Paul talks about the Spirit being the means to perseverance in verse 13. If by the Spirit, there's the instrumentality, the means of persevering, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the same Spirit that he references in verse 1 and 2 and 3. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit. The Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. There it is again, that saving act. It's the same Spirit prompting, causing salvation. It is that same Spirit that is now being set to work to cause us to persevere. And then thirdly, if we just look at our text in isolation, there is an argument that Paul is tracing out, which yet again teaches us that is the grace of salvation, that is the means of perseverance. Look with me again at verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's the assertion. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 4, verse 14. So what's Paul doing here? What's the argument? The 4 in verse 14 is trying to explain why what he just said is true. 
If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, the reason we know that that is true is because all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Paul is saying, if you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you are evidencing the fact that you are a son of God. But then he says again, verse 15, for, there's another for. So he's advancing his argument. The reason we know verse 14 is true is because, verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery so as to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. So you see, in Paul's argument, he is constructing layers, theological layers, by use of the the four, keep progressing the argument. He's building these layers, driving us back to the moment of salvation. In verse 15, he gets us back to that moment when we were adopted as sons of God. That's the moment of salvation. The second you put your faith in Christ, you are declared by the heavenly host to be a child of God. And through his line of reasoning, Paul takes us back there to show us the nature of the Spirit which prompts us to persevere. So, the grace by which you were saved is the very same grace by which you persevere. Which means this. The implication of that Observation is that you may never get beyond the grace of the gospel. That's the bottom line of this teaching. The grace of salvation is the grace of perseverance, which means in order to persevere and to attain to that final glorified state, you may never progress beyond the gospel. It may not become an old message to you. It cannot be something that you leave behind in your faith. It is not that the gospel was valuable to you in order to bring you into a relationship with God, but now I've moved on to other things. That cannot be the way in which you live the Christian life. Rather, as we said this morning, the Christian life needs to be one where you are continuously rehearsing the grace of your salvation. Your primary responsibility as a Christian is to rise up each day to find the gospel in this book. And it doesn't matter where you turn because from beginning to end, God is showcasing his saving glory and to minister to your heart afresh the grace by which you were saved. Because that is the grace by which you will persevere in that day. And the very next day, you stand and you rise and you rehearse the gospel again because your heart needs to hear of that grace by which you are saved because it is the grace by which you will persevere that very day. It makes my job a whole lot easier. I was speaking to a friend recently, you know him, he likes jazz, and we were speaking about the musicians that 
go around the jazz circuit. I don't know about these things. I'm saying things I don't understand right now. And he said, you know, these, these folks that get a lot of attention and, and people enjoy their music, what people don't understand is that they're, they're getting up onto the stage each time and they're really just playing the same melody. Every single week, they're just playing the same melody and of course, because it's jazz, they do funny things with it and they make it sound slightly quirky, but he said they're just doing the same thing, playing the same melody every week. And then my friend said, your job is to come every Sunday and to play the same melody every single week. And I couldn't agree more. In one sense... My responsibility is to come every single Sunday and to preach the gospel. Notwithstanding the responsibility that we have to give our attention to all of the wonderful riches and nuances and various doctrines that are in Scripture, the baseline message every single Sunday is the gospel. And it's for that reason that we labor so hard in our liturgy. In our services, the ordering of the services, the songs and the hymns that we sing, the prayers that you hear prayed, you understand we are striving to present the gospel every single week so that our corporate testimony, Sunday by Sunday, is to sing and to pray and to speak and to hear the gospel. And Joel is so wonderfully diligent to simply tell us that truth. We gather here this Sunday morning to rehearse the gospel. And I'll sometimes say, Joel, just tell them again. Because I don't want to assume that everyone here is tracking with what's going on. I don't want to assume that everybody understands, but just be as intentional as you can. Just say again at the beginning of the service, Joel, just tell them this morning we rehearse the gospel. And it is not, do not think that this emphasis is because we desire, above all things, to be evangelistic. We do. And I pray every Sunday. I pray every Sunday. That God would bring the lost. And that they would hear the gospel. And that they would be saved. I pray that prayer every Sunday morning. That is not the primary reason that we are laboring so hard to rehearse the gospel. We could fall into a way of thinking. At our church, we rehearse the gospel so that sinners would hear it and be saved. The primary reason we rehearse the gospel is for the saints. I pray that there would be the lost amongst us, but primarily Sunday morning and Sunday evening, our day of worship primarily is for the church. It is for the redeemed. It is for the, the saints. 
And we are primarily rehearsing the gospel for the saints. Because this is the message we need to hear afresh. This is the grace that we need to drink of afresh because it is the means by which you will persevere. And so every Sunday, by God's grace, we rehearse the gospel and next Sunday we do exactly the same again. Now, With that being said, perhaps one last question arises. We see the responsibility to persevere. We see the means of our perseverance, namely God's saving grace. What then is the manner? And by that I mean what practically does that look like? Because as I say to you that you need to drink of God's saving grace afresh... You might respond, what do we do then with all of those commands? What do we do with those imperatives? You tell me I need to just keep taking in the grace of the gospel. Beholding my Savior, Jesus Christ, drinking of that saving grace. What about all those imperatives? That's a good question. And and the manner of perseverance addresses that. We talk about salvation as a monogistic act, monogistic, one actor, God and God alone. We bring nothing to the table of salvation. We talk about perseverance as synergistic. There are two actors in the persevering. One is God and one is us, God's grace and our striving. But understand, in so much as it is a synergistic act, it must always be God's grace that leads. God's grace and our striving, and yet it must always be God's grace that leads. Notice Paul even hints at this reality when he says in verse 15, You receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So there's our striving, and that is a real striving. The Christian life is one of crying out to our Father and refusing to cry out to so-called other gods. There is a deliberate exclusion of all others that would claim our attention, and an intentional crying out to the Father, there is our striving. But, don't miss, in the very next verse, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. There's God's grace testifying to us. And it's on that basis that we strive. And so I refer often to the Christian life as one of grace-fueled striving. What does the Christian life look like? It looks like grace fueled striving you strive you absolutely strive but you are doing so fueled by the grace of God and this is all over the Bible once you are attuned to the reality of our perseverance being a synergistic work that is led by the grace of God you see it everywhere in scripture 
I love to think upon that short epistle towards the end of the New Testament written by Jude. Did you notice what he says? He writes to those Christians and he addresses them as those who are kept by God. That's how Jude opens. You are kept by God. And then, after speaking at length about those false teachers, what is the imperative that he gives them? Keep yourselves in the love of God. You are kept by God. Now keep yourselves in the love of God. And then he finishes with that wonderful doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That is a real imperative that rests on your shoulders each and every day in so much as you are a Christian. Keep yourself in that realm of God's love. Now to him who is able to keep you. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through the Lord Jesus Christ, be glory and dominion and majesty and authority both now and forevermore. Amen. You see it everywhere, a grace-fueled striving. And so, if I can expand on your job description, your task as a Christian each and every day is to get up and to rehearse the grace of the gospel to your weary soul. That is number one. Number two, and with that grace in your heart, you run. You take in the grace of the gospel. You minister it to your heart daily because our hearts are so fickle. Don't think that one Sunday to the next Sunday is sufficient. Get up each and every day and find that grace and minister it to your own heart. And with that grace, now strive. Fight against your sin. May there be a real present fight in your life against sin. Strive towards holiness. Learn what it is that God demands of his people and race towards those expectations fueled by the grace of God. That is your job description. I can't sing... I've told you guys this, you guys this, I can't sing, at least not without the help of others. The one thing you never ask me to do is to sing a solo. Whenever somebody mics me up, I say, do not amplify me when I'm singing. Now I can sing in tune when I can hear the voice of others in tune. That is enough to carry me along and I can find the right notes. And so the very first time that I married a couple, halfway through the ceremony, it dawned on me what a terrible thing was about to happen. Because I'm stood up the front and they're a few feet away from me and I have to sing to these poor souls and they'll hear just how much I can't carry a tune. I wasn't worried about the congregation, they're too far away, but these two who are just so happily married at this minute are now going to be subjected to my voice. 
And then I relaxed. And peace came over me because I realized they'll be singing to me. And provided they can sing in tune, and I'm, I was certain that they could, I can just sing in return. And so the song began, and sure enough, they had wonderful voices, and they sang wonderfully in tune, and I, on that basis, sang. And the Christian life of persevering is one where the grace of God sings to your heart on a daily basis. And on that foundation, you, Christian, sing. May the grace of God sing to our hearts and may we sing in response until Christ calls us home. Pray with me to close. Father, we praise you for your grace, not only in salvation, but so also in perseverance. We see the real responsibility we have as Christians to persevere unto glory. It is your appointed means by which we would reach the end. With the certainty of glory clearly stated, the appointed means from your good hand is that we would persevere. May we take this responsibility seriously. May we ever remember that the means by which we strive is your grace. Not our strength, not a different grace, but the grace by which we are saved is the grace by which we strive. And may we practically walk out that manner of persevering where the grace of the gospel is singing to our hearts each and every hour. And with that melody hidden away within us, we sing. We strive, we obey. May this be our reality till Christ appears to call us home. We pray in his name. Amen.